today, I'm going to be rushing as quickly as I can today because I think we have uh, one, two, three, four, five, six. We've been doing three a week. We're going to try to do six this week, which means I'm just going to, I'm going to blaze through them. And then next week, I think we have four to finish. I think that's right. And so I'm trying to, trying to draw this thing to a close uh, before we get into the real summertime and people truly start to disappear and and I uh, want to get back to sort of a normal rhythm of things. So we're going to start, and I'm just going to do like we've been doing in weeks past. I'm going to read the confession. I'm going to draw your attention to some things. And then, and then I'll stop at the end of each one, and you can ask me questions about that one, and we'll try to get through all six today. If we don't get through all six, then we don't. That's okay. But let's try. So we're going to start today with the statement on the kingdom. And this is the ninth article in the Baptist uh, Faith and Message 2000 a statement on the kingdom, and it says this. It says, The kingdom of God includes both His general sovereignty over the universe and His particular kingship over men who willfully acknowledge Him as king. Particularly, the kingdom is the realm of salvation into which men enter by trustful, childlike commitment to Jesus Christ. Christians ought to pray and labor that the kingdom may come and God's will be done on earth. The fullest consummation of the kingdom awaits the return of Jesus Christ and the end of this age. So that's our statement on the kingdom. And rather than writing a bunch of stuff up there today, I'm just going to trust you to keep up. Because I think if I start writing stuff up there, it'll take us too long. But I do want to draw your attention to a few things concerning the kingdom. And I want to ask you a question first. That um, I wonder how many of you were taught... Or came up in a tradition or in a church where whenever the kingdom was talked about, we were talking about something that was future. You remember that? That's, that's sort of, in a sense, how I came up. The first church that I pastored, as you walked into the foyer, there in the foyer uh, on the wall, there was a, somebody had donated a, a picture, a print of the Lord's Prayer. And, uh, and it said on that print that this was a kingdom and millennial prayer. And what the, they were getting at there was that this is a prayer about something future, but not something present. You know, in that prayer, we're told to pray for God's kingdom to come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the idea behind that poster, and I never had the heart, and it was probably a wise decision, but I never had the heart to take that down or to address it. But I think we're wrong to say that the kingdom is only something in the future. And this statement uh, speaks really specifically to what our idea of the kingdom of God is. And it says, first of all, that when we speak of the kingdom of God, and Jesus speaks of it over and over and over again, and it's really, really actually the substance of almost everything that he teaches. All of his parables that he teaches us about, they're almost always concerning the kingdom. When, it, when he came and when he began to preach, you remember that the Bible tells us that he, began, he came proclaiming the gospel of what? Or the good news of what? The kingdom of God. He came to talk about the kingdom. And so we have these three or four statements that I want to point out to you first is that when we talk about the kingdom, we're talking in a sense about God's general sovereignty. God is the king. So in a sense, God has sovereign rule over everything. Only things that happen in his kingdom, under his rule, and underneath of his sovereignty are things that he allows to happen. So nothing happens that isn't allowed, at least by God. He has general sovereignty over all things when we talk about the kingdom. Secondly, 
we talk about God's particular kingship over man. That God is the king of our hearts. That God's meant to be the king of our life. And in the statement it says, uh, goes on to define that or, or qualify that. It says that his particular kingship over men who willfully acknowledge him as their king. So through faith in Jesus Christ, we enter into the kingdom in the sense that, that God becomes our king and becomes the one who's ruling our lives. We submit to him as king. And then, third, it said that it is the realm, the kingdom uh, is the realm of salvation. Now that's a little bit strange for us to talk about uh, in language like that, but I think you understand what that means. When Jesus talks about the kingdom of God or uh, that the kingdom is like this or, the, or he defines the kingdom through parables, what he's talking about is really what it means to live as somebody who's in a right relationship with God. This is what it means. You're in the realm of salvation. You're in relationship with God. We think of the Sermon on the Mount, which is really an exposition of the kingdom, what the kingdom is like, and particularly that realm of salvation. What is it like to live your life in a way that pleases God? So we have the realm of salvation. And then the final statement is that there is a future kingdom. There's a future kingdom coming, and that the kingdom will not fully, uh, well, the, the full consummation of the kingdom awaits the return of Christ. So there is a sense in which there's an already kingdom and a not yet kingdom. There's a lot of things in the Bible that are like that. They're already true, but they're not yet fulfilled completely. And the kingdom is one of those things. So God's general sovereignty, God's particular kingship over man, the realm of salvation, and we're awaiting the full consummation of the kingdom until the return of Jesus Christ and the end of this age. So that's the kingdom. I know I went fast through that, but any questions, any questions on that? I mean, this is really important if you're going to read the Gospels because Jesus talks about the kingdom constantly. And if your only thought is that the kingdom is something that happens after Christ returns, then you're going to miss a lot of what Jesus teaches us, a lot of what he means for us to know. So, so make sure that you understand those things. All right, last things. I'll do this one really quickly, and this is one that we can get bogged down in pretty quick. But here's a simple statement on last things. This is Article 10. God, in His own time and in His own way, will bring the world to its appropriate end. I feel like we could stop right there. I feel like that's almost all that needs to be said about last things. Like, remember at the, uh, in Acts chapter 1, when Jesus is preparing to ascend into heaven... He's gathered with his disciples, and they ask him, uh, Lord, will will you at this time restore the kingdom? And what they're asking him is what? Is this the end? Like, is this this it? Are we getting ready to finish this whole thing? And, And Jesus responds by telling them what? It's not for you to know the times or places. This is a father's business. It's not for you to know, but instead he commissions them to go out and share the gospel, to be witnesses. And I think that, that it's, it's not that we shouldn't study these things. It's not that we shouldn't look into these things. It's not that we shouldn't be curious about these things. But I think there's been an inordinate amount of attention given to these things when it's one of the things that Jesus clearly told us is none of our business, that we're not meant to know about it, that even he, in willful submission to the Father, doesn't know when the Father will consummate the, the kingdom, when it will happen. So why do we spend all of this time and all of this effort looking at newspaper clippings and reading Tim LaHaye books and doing all these things about when the end will come. When Jesus said, 
It's not for you to know. And I think that's an important statement at the beginning of our statement on the last things. It says that God, in his own time and in his own way, will bring the world to its appropriate end. It's his business. He'll do it his way. According to his promise, this is the second sentence, according to his promise, Jesus Christ will return personally and visibly in glory to the earth. The dead will be raised and Christ will judge all men in righteousness. The unrighteous will be consigned to hell, the place of everlasting punishment. The righteous in their resurrected and glorified bodies will receive their reward and will dwell forever in heaven with the Lord. All right, so just uh, three statements I already made the first statement, and that's that the times in which God will, uh, will end or the times in which the end will come are God's business, not ours. So that's, that's important. Secondly, that Jesus will return personally and visibly. So remember that also in Acts chapter 1 when Jesus ascends into heaven, the angels are standing there next to the, uh, to the disciples who are watching. It says they're gazing up into heaven. They've watched him go up into heaven physically, visibly, bodily. They've watched him go. And the angels say, in the same way that you've seen him go, Christ will return. So we believe that it's not going to be a spiritual event that, that isn't, actually happening it's not just going to be sort of like a snap of the fingers and it's all over and that's it and then we're with Christ that it's actually going to be an event where Jesus is actually going to descend again physically bodily visibly from heaven when he comes again your eyes will be able to see him if there are uh, television cameras present they'll be able to film it it's going to be a real event Jesus is going to return and when Christ returns third All men, both living and dead, will face the final judgment. So when Christ returns, the judgment will happen. And that's that's also important for us to understand, that when he returns, that's it. That's it. When he returns, there's no second chances. There's no uh, going back. There's no try again. There's no do-over. When he returns, the judgment comes. Now, I want to mention just briefly, even though I said that I don't want us to get bogged down here, I do want to mention... Briefly, that there's no mention in this. All of those things that we spend so much energy talking about. Premillennialism, postmillennialism, amillennialism, pre or the rapture, pre-tribulation, mid-tribulation, post-tribulation, no rapture. All I mean, all the things that we spend so much time talking about. None of them are mentioned in our confession, specifically. We're just, the, the three things that are specifically mentioned are that this is God's business, that Jesus will return personally and visibly, and when Christ returns, the judgment will come. Okay, evangelism and missions. Article 11 of the Baptist Faith and Message. It is the duty and privilege of every follower of Christ, excuse me, and every church of the Lord Jesus Christ to endeavor to make disciples of all nations. The new birth of man's spirit by God's Holy Spirit means the birth of love for others. Missionary effort on the part of all rests thus on a spiritual necessity of the regenerate life and is expressly and repeatedly commanded in the teaching of Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ has commanded the preaching of the gospel to all nations. It is the duty of every child of God to seek constantly to win the lost to Christ by verbal witness undergirded by a Christian lifestyle and by other methods in harmony with the gospel 
of Christ. All right, so evangelism and missions. So a couple things just to point out out of that statement. One is that every believer and every church should be working to make disciples of all nations. That we view it confessionally as the responsibility of every believer and every church to be working to make disciples of all nations. Now, I want to pause for a, mo- a moment here and, and try to help you see a bigger picture of this whole thing because I think that this oftentimes we misunderstand what it means to be involved in evangelism and missions personally, and then many of us live with guilt because we don't do it like we should. Or when the pastor starts talking about evangelism and missions, people look down, they don't make eye contact because the truth is that not many, not many of us are doing a whole lot of witnessing in the church. Let's just be honest. I'm not going to poll you, but let's just be honest. That's the way it is, that not many people are doing the actual work of this. But I think And I'm not excusing you from personal responsibility here. But I think that you have to understand your role in evangelism and missions within the context of being part of a local church. So here's an example that I gave uh, to some people recently. We We were discussing this whole topic. And we were discussing about, you know, what if I'm not actively doing this all the time? Does that mean I'm being unfaithful to God? And the example that I used was Denise, my wife. Now, Denise is a, sh- a shy person in many ways. In many ways, she's really not. But she, she can be, in, in a lot of ways, just introverted. And she doesn't speak. She doesn't like to speak to people she doesn't know. She gets scared speaking in groups of people, that type of thing. And I think, now I can think of specific occasions over the years where she has personally led people to come to Christ. I I could tell you those stories, but those were exceptional stories to her narrative of life. But, but, Denise's role within the kingdom and within the church, I think specifically, is to support me and to make sure that I'm able to do the work that God has called me to. As my wife, that's her specific role in the church. She does other things. She does the nursery schedule. She does the welcome center. But her specific role in the church is to support me in my work in the church. My specific role in the church is to equip you guys for the work of the ministry. We go and we do other things as a church. And all of this to say that... When the New Testament talks about us being part of the body, and some of us are eyes, and some of us are ears, and some of us are fingers, and some of us have more honor than others, some of us are quiet members, some of us are are visible members, all those things, but we're all members of one body. We're all existing for one thing. We're all moving towards the same mission. What I'm getting at here is that I don't want you to hear this and hear where it says that every believer is responsible to do this and then think, well, I'm not really doing a lot of this. And therefore, I'm, I might be, and you might be, you might be, and I, you might be if you have opportunities and you're not doing it, you might be. But I don't want you to walk away from here feeling guilty like I've missed the boat here. Because I think that the bigger context of the New Testament puts us together as a body. 
So has Denise had a role in reaching the people that I preach to in Ghana, the big crowds, sometimes of a thousand or two thousand people? Has she had a role in that personally? Yes. yes. Have you had a role in that personally? Yeah, exactly. Some none of the Bible talks about that. In Romans, the book of Romans, it talks about some go and some are sent. And and so or or in some sin, how will they go unless they're sent? So you're a sender, I'm a goer, right? So what I'm getting at is that when we talk about our personal responsibility, I think that it you do have personal responsibility. I had just this week, two times this week where I had unexpected encounters with people where I had the opportunity to share with them about Christ. And in the moment, had I not done it, I think that I would have been sinning in that moment because they came to me in that context. They, they had questions. They were struggling. And I, and I had a responsibility in that moment. I have to share with them what my hope is in Christ and what it can be for them. But in the larger context of things, I think that we're meant to work together as a body. And so in that sense... You're meant to be part of the body of Christ, gathered together. We talked about this in week two, gathered together in a local congregation where we can all use our gifts and utilize them together and functioning as a body. We're all personally involved in the act of evangelism and missions. Does that make sense to y'all? Now, if, if, if you're a person who doesn't do it personally, individually, and you have no interest in serving within the church, then I would say you're outside of the will of God, and that's sin. But if you're functioning in the church, finding a role in the church, supporting the church and the mission of the church, then I'd say that you are part of that process, an important part of that process. And when opportunities present them to you, themselves to you individually, you should seize them and, and take the opportunity to, to verbally share Christ. And, and in your Christian witness at work and in your neighborhood and wherever you go, that's part of your witness. So we're all responsible for that. So it is every believer's responsibility, but you have to understand that responsibility within the context of the church or else most of us will just drive ourselves crazy thinking I'm not doing a good job here. You know what I mean? Y'all get that? Okay. I want to make that clear. I really believe that. And that's not because I'm trying to find a loophole. I really believe that's how it's meant to work. I really believe that um, I could tell you lots of stories about sharing Christ with people individually, myself, but I don't get to do that without a whole body behind me helping me to do it. I don't get to do that without Denise helping me, supporting me in ministry. So it's not that some of us do it, some of us don't. I think we're all involved in the process together. Some people are gifted that way as well, especially gifted that way and do it better than others. That's true. But anyway, all right. So we're supposed to be doing every church should be working. Every individual, every believer should be working to make disciples of all nations. Now here's another issue. And I don't have this subdivided in my notes, but I think I have time to deal with this. Here's the other issue of, am I just responsible for the people around me, or am I responsible for all nations? Well, when Jesus gave the commission, Matthew 28 and Acts chapter 1, he gave the commission for us to make disciples in Matthew 28 of what? All nations. In Acts chapter 1, he broke it into different groups or different categories, starting in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. But I think what he's saying in Acts chapter 1 is not do one, then the other, then, and then the other. I think what he's saying is do it all. Make disciples of all nations. And so we ought to be striving as much as possible to make disciples of every person to the ends of the earth as far as we can reach. 
in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, we ought to be doing it all, not just one or the other. And I've always had the experience, by the way, I'll just put this out there for you. I've had the experience over the last 15 years in churches that the people who say to me, Pastor, why do we have to go to the other side of the world? Can't we just do it here? I've always had the experience that usually the people who tell me that or ask me that aren't very interested in doing it here either. They're just offended that we're going somewhere. So, so don't, don't misunderstand that we're just supposed to do it in Jerusalem. Then when we get done in Jerusalem, we'll go to the next step. I think Jesus is being inclusive. Do it all. Paul did it all. He went as far as he could in the world. He went everywhere that he could. So um, secondly in that statement is that evangelism and missions are commanded in the teaching of Christ. So a church or an individual Christian who's not involved in the process of reaching others with the gospel is living in direct opposition to the commands of Christ, and it's sin. It's sin to not do it. It's sin to not be a part of it. All right, questions about evangelism and missions? Quickly. No? Okay. Education. This one might surprise you that this is in our statement of faith. Article 12 is on education. Jill, you'll probably appreciate this as an educator, really, because I think that people might be surprised that we take such a firm position on education and what we believe that education is. It says this, Christianity is the faith of enlightenment and intelligence. In Jesus Christ abide all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All sound learning is therefore a part of our Christian heritage. The new birth opens all faculties and creates a thirst for knowledge. Moreover, the case of education in the kingdom of Christ is coordinate with the causes of missions and general benevolence and should receive along with these the liberal support of the churches. An adequate system of Christian education is necessary to complete spiritual uh, program for Christ's people. In Christian education, there should be a proper balance between academic freedom and academic responsibility. Freedom in any orderly relationship of human life is always limited and never absolute. The freedom of a teacher in a Christian school, college, or seminary is limited by the preeminence of Jesus Christ and by the authoritative nature of the Scriptures and by the distinct purposes for which the school exists. So, a statement on Christian education. I think there's some pretty interesting statements or, or sentences in that clause or in that article. Uh, one is that it begins by, by affirming that Christianity is an intellectual faith. I think that's important. That, that we, don't, we don't, as Christians, ask people to become Christians based on a feeling. Um, the, the book of Mormon. How many of you ever ever met with a Mormon missionary at your door? You ever had that experience? And they're trained to do something specific when they come to you. They're trained to come to you and do their best to talk to you and engage you. And, and, and eventually what they want to do is get the Book of Mormon in your hands. And what they'll tell you, what they'll tell you when they do that is to read this book and then pray about it. And then ask God to confirm it for you and, and you will receive, and this is their language, you will receive a warm feeling in your bosom. This is what, literally what they'll tell you. And when you feel that, then you'll know it's true. Now, why would they do that? Why would that be the way that they want to affirm the Book of Mormon? I'll tell you why. 
not well largely i mean you're right but but largely because the book of mormon is a book of uh historical narrative about people who didn't exist ever they were hebrew people who got on sailboats from israel seriously sailed to america took up residence here before the settlers long before the settlers in ancient times they lived here in the Midwest and the West with the American Indians and had these whole great, this whole great civilization that eventually ceased to exist. And, and the Book of Mormon's all about those people. Yeah, yeah all that stuff. They didn't exist, right? These are people... Right, these are people who literally didn't exist historically. There's no evidence on the planet that any of them existed. There's no archaeological evidence that they were in the places where the Book of Mormon says that they were. There's no, I mean, there's just no evidence. And so what they're saying to you when they're saying, read it, ask God to confirm it to you, and when you feel a warm feeling in your bosom, you'll know it's true. They're saying that to you because they're saying, please don't engage this book with your mind. Because if you engage it with your mind, you're immediately going to have to say, this can't be true. Now, on the other hand, when we take this book and we take the historical evidence in this book, and I know there are things in here that we can't verify. I get that. But the people in this book existed. The places in this book existed, and some of them still exist. And archaeology, every time it makes an advance, every single time we unearth something new, it doesn't tell us that this isn't true. It just affirms it more and more for us. So when we say that, that Christianity is an intellectual faith, we're saying use your mind. We're not afraid of truth. We're not afraid of science. We're not afraid of any of those things. Use your mind. It's okay to think. God gave you a brain. He gave you the ability to reason. He gave you the ability to, to think clearly. So do it. Use it. But the idea is, and we're not only an intellectual faith. I mean, not all, but but we are an intellectual faith. Remember, this is a statement on education. So we are an intellectual faith. And then the second thing I want you to notice is that it says that all sound learning is part of a Christian heritage. I think that's really neat to think about. That from our perspective, we're saying that any time you encounter a place or a system or a structure where people are being engaged in, engaged in sound learning, that's part of our Christian heritage. We believe that that's part of the way that, that God has created us and that God has gifted us and that God wants us to be. Education's important to us. We believe that's part of our heritage. And that the cause of education, I don't know if you caught that as I was reading it, but very clearly it says that the cause of education should be pursued by the church and that it's the responsibility of the church to, to further the cause of education. And specifically it says that the cause of education in the kingdom of Christ is coordinate with the causes of missions and general benevolence. In other words, it's legitimate for us missionally to go to South Sudan and start a school. That's just as legitimate as Christians as it is to go to South Sudan and start a church. Because we believe that it's equally important. Uh, that that many, many people all across sub-Saharan Africa and in other places were reached by the gospel in a school. In a school, not in a church. And so we believe that these things are important. So, so education, I think that's a, a neat one that, that's in our 
statement of faith. Okay, Article 13 is on stewardship. I think we're going to get this done as we go quickly through these. Um, Article 13, stewardship. God is the source of all blessings, temporal and spiritual. All that we have and and are, we owe to Him. Christians have a spiritual debtorship to the whole world, a holy trusteeship in the gospel, and a binding stewardship in their possessions. They are therefore under obligation to serve Him with their time, talents, and material possessions, and should recognize all these as entrusted to them to use for the glory of God and for helping others. According to the Scriptures, Christians should contribute to their, of their means cheerfully, regular, regularly, systematically, proportionately, and liberally for the advancement of the Redeemer's cause on earth. All right, so stewardship. Um, a couple of things I'll mention. One, obviously, we believe that God is the source of every good thing that we have. So all of your resources that you possess, all the things that you have in your life, the money that you have in your bank account, biblically, the Bible tells us that we don't have any of it unless God allows us to have it. It's given to us by God. Now, God allows the rain to fall, by the way, on the just and the unjust. So are there Christians who have a lot or non-Christians who have a lot? Yes, there are. And God has, has blessed people in all sorts of unusual ways. But we know that the Bible says every good and perfect gift comes from above, from, from the Father of lights in whom there's no shifting shadow or, or variation. So God is the source. And so once we understand that, we know that, that we've become stewards of what he's given us. So we're caretakers, redistributors of what God has given us. So all Christians should be stewards. And there were three uh, sort of categories where this statement uh, placed our stewardship. One, number one, I thought interestingly enough, is time. That we ought to be good stewards of our time uh, for the sake of, of serving Him under obligation because He's given us all good things. We're meant to, to serve Him with our time. That is, according to nearly every uh, study nowadays in Western culture, the most valuable commodity in Western culture is not money, it's time. And so when we don't uh, act as good stewards of our time, and when we don't serve Him with our time or give time to the cause of Christ, I think immediately we've taken the thing that's most valuable to us and elevated it above God become bad stewards and maybe, may possibly, probably even idolaters. So we're meant to be stewards of our time, uh, also of our talents. God gives you talents. God gives you gifts. God gives you things that you're interested in, that you're um, predisposed towards. And we're meant to use those things, utilize those things for the kingdom, for the sake of the cause of Christ. And then a third, our material possessions. And obviously money falls within that. So should we give materially? Should we give financially? Yes. It says that we're to contribute of our means cheerfully, regularly, systematically, proportionally, and liberally for the advancement of the Redeemer's cause on earth. So all Christians are stewards of the things that God has given them. Any questions on stewardship? Okay, last one for today. Uh, I think, yep, last one for today is on cooperation. So this is Article 14. Cooperation. Christ's people should, as occasion requires, organize such associations and conventions 
as may best secure cooperation for the great objects of the kingdom of God. Such organizations have no authority over one another or over the churches. They are voluntary and advisory bodies designed to elicit, combine, and direct the energies of our people in the most effective manners. Members of the New Testament churches should cooperate with one another in carrying forward the missionary, educational, and benevolent ministries for the extension of Christ's kingdom. Christian unity in the New Testament sense is spiritual harmony and voluntary cooperation for common ends by various groups of Christ's people. Cooperation is desirable between the various Christian denominations when the end to be attained is itself justified and when such cooperation involves no violation of conscience or compromise of loyalty to Christ and His Word as revealed in the New Testament. All right, a couple things, and then I'll tell you who we associate with. Um, one, that really the statement on cooperation begins by just explaining that two are better than one. That's simple, right? Any wise person knows that, that two get more done than one, that three probably get more done than two. You know, I mean, it's just the idea that if we cooperate together, uh, we can all accomplish a bigger mission than we could do alone. I could not have participated in missions the way that I have individually over the years had it not been for other people enabling me to do that. It's just impossible. And for some of you, like Linda, you said, like, you're not going, but in order for you to participate, we do it together, right? So, so two are better than one. So Linda may not be able to go, and I may not have the means to go, but together we both accomplish the mission and so that's just the basic idea is that we should cooperate. And then it says that associations and conventions have no authority over the church. These cooperative agreements uh, don't place us in a position where we're underneath of an authority. Now, for us, we associate voluntarily with two organizations. The MMBA, which is the Mid-Maryland Baptist Association, which is most... It's all of Howard County. Our association is so weird. It's all of Howard County, part of Carroll County, a couple churches in Baltimore, and a couple churches in Pennsylvania. I don't, I don't know why that is. <laughs> I think we might even have one in, in Frederick County as well. But uh, MMBA, so Mid-Maryland Baptist Association, and we've been over this, the Southern Baptist Convention. So we, are, we voluntarily cooperate with those two. And then underneath the Southern Baptist Convention... You have the mission organization, which is the North American Mission Board and the International Mission Board. And the International Mission Board is the largest missionary sending entity in the world, in the history of the world, and still remains the largest. And it, and it is that way because we cooperate together. It's the only way that that can happen. Um, we've always believed as Southern Baptists that it's a good idea for the churches to pool their resources and then together send and, and do things and do disaster relief. You know, the second largest disaster relief organization behind the American Red Cross is the Southern Baptist Convention. And that's because we pull all of our resources and we're able to do these things together. Whether it's a church of, of 35, like I pastored up in West Virginia, we contribute to the cooperative program and all of this money moves through and we work together, or whether it's a church like this of 120 people uh, or however many members we have here, 
or whether it's a church of 5,000 or 10,000 people. We're all in this together. We're all pulling our resources, and we're all doing the work together. But none of these organizations have any authority over us. We've talked about that already. Like in a couple weeks, Denise and I are going down to Birmingham for the Southern Baptist Annual Meeting, the convention, Southern Baptist Convention Annual Meeting. And that meeting is essentially, I know this sounds so exciting, it's essentially a big, giant business meeting with a couple thousand people. And what we'll do is we'll get together and we'll vote on things. We'll vote on resolutions. We'll elect president. We'll elect officers. We'll do all the things because the churches have authority over the convention, not the convention having authority over the churches. So associations have no authority over the churches. Then cooperation between Christian denominations is desirable. So should we work with Methodists and Presbyterians and Lutherans? That's desirable. Unless, and there's the qualifier. I don't know if you caught it when I read through it the first time. Unless it violates our conscience or loyalty to Christ and His Word. So we cooperate with other denominations until we get to a point where we say our cooperation with you now causes our conscience to be violated. We believe that, that you are doing something that we can't justify biblically. And by partnering with you now, we've become unequally yoked. And the Bible says that you're not, and that's not just about dating or marriage. That's about when, essentially, when you partner with somebody to accomplish something, if you're unequally yoked together, you're not supposed to do that. And so we believe that, yes, we should cooperate, and we do in some things cooperate with other denominations, some more than others, but there are certain denominations where it has become very difficult for us to partner in anything because of positions on uh, things like same-sex marriage, positions on social issues, all types of things where now our cooperation has violated our conscience in the way that we view our loyalty to Christ and to the Bible, and so we no longer do that. So, but we're not a separatist people. And I want to make that clear. Like the, uh, We've talked a little bit about the confusing verbiage about independent Baptist churches. Um, independent Baptist churches are separatists. Like the, They just don't want to cooperate with anybody. And they may cooperate with each other to some extent, but outside of that... They don't want to. I uh, went to a, a funeral in Virginia not too long ago at a regular Baptist church. And regular Baptist church, what makes a church a regular Baptist church, one of its defining marks is to not cooperate with other denominations. And I found it interesting that um, there was a news story about the regular Baptist churches recently that they uh, had supported Cedarville University. I think it's in Ohio thing, and they had been supporting Cedarville, but at uh, a recent, at the Southern Baptist Convention, it was discovered that Cedarville had a display at the Southern Baptist Convention annual meeting, and so the regular Baptist Convention voted to disassociate with Cedarville because they had associated and cooperated with the Southern Baptist Convention, not on the grounds of anything theological or moral, but on the grounds of we don't cooperate with other people. I think that's really strange, but um, but we believe it's okay to do that. It's okay to cooperate with other people as long as it doesn't violate our conscience or loyalty to Christ and His Word. Okay.